HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. This week on Meet and 3, we continue our trade series with a piquant look at the many faces of the spice trade. From the high price tag of saffron to the ubiquity of chilies and the potential ripple effect that farmer protests in India may have on the global spice market. You know, farmers are, are protesting because they feel like their lives and livelihoods are on the line. You find it in a lot of cured foods like cured meat and Parmesan cheese. Um, you also find it in ripening foods like ripe tomatoes are very high in uh, MSG. So there's sources of it all over the natural world. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Aki Kotema, a food writer and a director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Andrew Santofante, who is the co-owner and head brewer of North American Sake Brewery in Southville, Virginia, which opened in 2018. It's uh, Virginia's first and only sake brewery. Despite its short history, the brewery has won the silver and bronze medals at the 2020 World Sake Challenge for its classic style sake. But Andrew also makes super creative sake as well. So today we'll discuss how Andrew got into Japanese sake, challenges in opening a sake brewery in Virginia, his innovative philosophy of making sake, and much, much more. But before we start, Japan is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify, and whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japanese. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. And I have a quick announcement. Um, MoFat, uh, or the Museum of Food and Drink, is holding a fascinating online event on Wednesday, March 10th, from 8 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
The event is called Miso Shoyu and Samurai, the cuisine and culture of Aichi Prefecture. Known as the home of samurai, the Aichi Prefecture is celebrated for its exquisite white soy sauce and umami rich miso, called the Hacho Miso, among many other things. And located between Tokyo and Osaka, Aichi has a distinctive food culture. For example, if you order a cup of coffee,、uh, you will get a free set of breakfast in Nagoya, which is the capital of the, the prefecture. It's called the morning. And so during the event, there will be a cooking demo、uh, to introduce us to Aichi's unique products. And Master Brad Braidsmith, Marie Carter, Who received the title of the 17th generation Yoshimoto Braidsmith in Japan will discuss Japanese craftsmanship. Also, food writer and culinary photographer Michael Holland Turkel and myself will have a discussion with guests from Aichi about the unique food culture. For tickets, please go to MOFAD's website. It's www.mofad.org, mofad.org slash events, and click on March 10th on the calendar. On the screen, and you can also order specialty ingredient box with each product with your tickets before March 4th at、uh, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So,、um, hopefully, I'll see you there. So, now let's start a conversation with Andrew Santofante. Hi, Andrew, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you doing? Good, so happy、great. to be here. I'm <laughs> very honored to have you here. <laughs> so, so, first of all,、um, we are curious who you are. So, where are you from and what did you eat when you grew up? Yeah, so、uh, I'm from the, the East Coast. I was, really, I was born in New Jersey, raised in North Carolina, and,、uh, and then eventually made my way to Virginia,、uh, where I've been now for the last probably 20 years.、Um, what did I eat when I was growing up?、Um, You know, my, my family has an Italian heritage. So,、uh, you know, obviously we had a lot of pasta and Italian food. You know, I grew up on my grandmother's、uh, meatball and homemade,、uh, homemade pastas、um, and all kinds of things like that.、Um, it, it kind of is the base of, of <laughs> a lot of what I still eat now. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you're one of those、uh, lucky ones to be able to eat、uh, grandmother's Italian food. Yeah, yeah. My grandmother was an incredible chef.、Uh, she would make such, such delicious、uh, Italian food, like roasted red peppers. And,、um, and I think the thing that I always loved was when we, when, when we would make、uh, homemade pasta together,、um, you know, mixing those ingredients and then.、Uh, You know, hanging the, the noodles on, on broomsticks across all over the kitchen was always a fond memory of mine.、Mm, right. And,、uh, and of course, Italian food goes so well with the Japanese sake, too. So, yes, it does. Right. So, it's not a coincidence that you're making sake. <laughs> so, so, how did you get into sake? Yeah. So, my journey with sake、um, started probably about.、Uh, 10 years ago now,、uh, I was really fortunate to、uh, be working for a company called Semester at Sea.、Um, and I was able to travel the world on a ship.、Uh, so, Semester at Sea is a study abroad program that takes students to a number of different countries around the world. And I was able to work on the ship as a videographer.、Um, and so, I was able to travel. To, I think on that trip, we did、uh, 14 different countries、uh, over the course of a semester. And so, all along the way, I got the opportunity to explore 
you know, world cuisine, uh, all kinds of different foods and, and drink from, uh, you know, South Africa to uh, India to China. And then Japan was one of our last stops. And uh, I really had an eye-opening experience uh, in terms of sake when I was there. Um, and I wish I could tell you where I was. It was somewhere in Tokyo having an incredible uh, sushi dinner. Um, and looking at this sake list and, and, and just thinking, you know, I'm here in Japan and I don't know much about sake, but I'm here, let's dive in. And I started to just try multiple different sakes from different breweries and different regions. And it was so mind blowing. Um, just the, the range of flavor, the range of, of different styles and, um, just different, different, um, texture that I was experiencing for the first time. Uh, it was just a revelation. Um, and so from that point forward, it became a real hobby of mine. I, um, I came back to the U S and just started seeking out different sakes and really looking for new bottles, new, um, you know, labels that I hadn't seen before, new producers and, you know, slowly started to kind of build my knowledge around what sake was, um, which was a lot of fun. I encourage everybody to do that. <laughs> mm. Well, but back, back then, 10 years ago, that, I don't think uh, sake was widely available as much as now, right? Especially. Well, yeah, no, and it's still not very widely available, especially in Virginia. Um, it was one of those things where, you know, I kind of exhausted my local supplies pretty quick of, of something new. But if I happened to be traveling or going to visit a friend somewhere, I'd always swing by a liquor store or, a, a, you know, a beer shop and see if they had something different. Or every time I went to a, a Japanese restaurant, you kind of, you know, start looking for, for um, types we hadn't tried before. And I think that that's something that really opened my eyes to sake because I, I drink a lot of different alcohol. I love beer, craft beer and wine and ciders um, and kind of my perspective around, you know, that kind of that craft style of, of um alcohol, for some reason, I hadn't really realized that around sake. But when I was in Japan and seeing all the different brewers and seeing all the different types and classifications, it was just kind of this moment of, oh, wow, there's a lot more to sake than I thought. And so, you know, looking for different breweries is something that I think is a lot of fun to do. And I encourage everybody to do it. Right. Yeah. And then especially, uh, you know, I've been based in New York for a long time and go to Japan sometimes on the one, like really ordinary liquor store and you go to, you know, the sake section, there's a whole wall of it and you get excited. It's like 10 times more, 100 times more sake, like, wow. So yeah, it's just unlimited uh, surprises in the world of sake. Um, but you opened your sake brewery in Charlottesville, Virginia, in 2018, but your background was marketing. So... Why did you decide to open your own sake brewery in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, it was a it was a slow kind of progression, um, but it, I um, I kind of I had always done home brew of beer, and you know, one fateful night after drinking maybe one too many bottles of sake, I I was looking at it and just going, I wonder if I could make this. I wonder how it's made, <laughs> and um, you know, that was a very fateful night because the next morning I went out and I went to the homebrew store and they had some um, Koji spore and 
I went and got some rice and I, and I tried it out for the first time making koji in my attic because uh, it was warm and, and, you know, my main mash in my basement because it was cold. And, um, you know, the first batch wasn't great <laughs> looking back, but it was good enough to kind of get me hooked. And so I just started brewing a lot of sake in my basement and my, you know, one batch turned into three, turned into five, uh, turned into 10, 20. And then my wife was like, what are you doing? And <laughs> converting the whole basement <laughs> into a small sake brewery. Um, so it really, it became just such a passion. It was this, this drive to understand because it was all and still is so mysterious and and magical to me. Um, and the flavors, the aromas were so unique and so different than anything that I had experienced before. Um, and so I just, and I knew that my sake, uh, you know, it just had a lot of work to do on it. So I just wanted to keep trying and trying and learning and trying to get better. Um, so from there kind of started doing bigger, um, steps of, of trying to see if this is something I could do professionally, uh, travel to different sake brews around the U S and then eventually got to go, um, over to Japan again and, um, study under, uh, Di- uh diamond son at diamond Shuzo, a sixth generation sake brewer out there. Um, and yeah, so yeah. So let me just interrupt for a second. So that sounds like you really studied sake making by trial and error first, and then eventually you interned at the Diamond Brewery in Osaka, right, to learn from the sixth generation master sake brewer. And uh, so, so when was it? And uh, how was the experience? Like, you know, give me more details. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was a lot of trial and error. Um, you know, there aren't a lot of resources in English and readily available, uh, you know, online. It's not like the beer community where you've got message boards and uh, different groups and, um, you know, associations that are, are put together. So, you're kind of flying blind in a lot of ways. Um, and so I think that that kind of drove this curiosity in my mind. I, I, I kind of, it kind of frustrated me and I wanted to figure it out, um, and understand it as best I could. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of trial and error. Um, and then, you know, again, fate steps in, in, in funny ways, but one, one night I was, uh, doing some research, you know, combing through YouTube for any videos about sake making that I could find. And I stumbled upon one uh, from Diamond Shuzo. And I, and I went to their website and went to their contact form and just sent them an email and said, hey, <laughs> you know, I'm, 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 I'm a sake brewer. I'm an aspiring sake brewer. Like, would, <laughs> is there any way we could connect? And um, the next day, I got an email back from um, Marcus Consolini, who is the CEO over there. Um, and we connected. And within, I think, a week and a half, two weeks, I was on a flight to, to Osaka. Oh um, wow. <laughs> it, was, it was unbelievable. And they welcomed me with such open arms. Uh, Diamond Sun is one of the um, kindest, most uh, generous men. Uh, he opened his brewery to me. Marcus as well, um, their home, uh, welcomed me and helped me to really, uh, learn a lot when I was there and participate. You know, I got to be in their Koji room. I got to help, uh, wash the rice and steam the rice and clean the press and 
do all the things that um, are part of, of that process. So um, invaluable experience and uh, one of one of the um, just just it's been uh, wonderful and they've just been such great great friends to me. Mm, right. So, listeners, if you uh, were wondering what this magical Marcos Constantini is, and he joined us uh, on episode 214, 214, and uh, he's the only um, non-Japanese sake uh, brewery owner, I mean, traditional brewery owner, and his story is really magical, too. So, that's on episode 214. And, wow, so you completely got the hands-on experience and taught by the sixth-generation master so it's, it's such a destiny, I think, sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like sake kind of came into my life and, <laughs> and took over in a way, you know, from that trip to Japan to learning about it to making it at home to, to kind of these bigger steps. It kind of uh, just came in and, and took over. It's, and I love it. I absolutely love it. Mm, right. So, but, you know, opening a sake brewery is not easy, particularly outside of Japan. So what are the biggest challenges so far? Oh, there have been so many challenges. Um, yeah, opening a sake brewery is, is not easy to do. Um, from a, a, a legal standpoint, you know, we were Virginia's, we are Virginia's first and only sake brewery. Um, and so it was a question of, of how would we be classified you know, where would the law kind of put us having never dealt with a sake brewery before, um, trying to source equipment, um, was a, a big challenge. Uh, and then, you know, sourcing rice, uh, getting yeast, getting koji supplies, um, and building this place out and kind of, you know, having to explain to people, uh, what we're trying to accomplish and in, in all the different processes to help build out the space. And then, yeah, getting it all the way to the point where we open the doors and, um, you know, trying to drive people in here and, and get them to understand, like, what we're actually doing. So on, on every level, it was challenging. And, you know, we, we put a lot of ourselves into it. Most of the, brewer, or the bar itself is, and, and tasting room was built by hand by myself and my father. Um, and, you know, a lot of the equipment is kind of a hodgepodge borrowing some things from beer, borrowing some things from wine, it's a lot of custom built um, pieces like our Koji table and some of our Koji boxes. Um, so it's, it's a constant work in progress of kind of uh, building and, and keeping up uh, what we've got. Um, but I think even more than that, once we kind of got rolling, the biggest challenge has definitely been uh, getting the word out about who we are and what we're doing. Um, and, you know, we're two years in and we're still... Uh, we still hear all the time, I had no idea you guys even existed. Uh, but luckily, the people who come here and try our product, uh, you know, come away loving what we're doing. So it's just a challenge, you know, kind of getting the U.S. market to embrace what we're up to. But it's more about just getting our name out there, I think. Mm, right. Um, you know, this COVID did really crazy bad things to us, but uh, one of the, the upside is that uh, the alcohol sales went up, like I think by 80% or something. So, and uh, I also heard uh, sake sales, uh, retail sales went up by a lot uh, since the lockdown. So, sounds like there is some uh, silver lining, I hope. 
<laughs> yeah, I think there's some silver lining. You know, I think um, it really depends on on different markets. You know, we went through a, a, a lot of ups and down over the last year and continue to kind of go through that. A lot of our sales right now being such a young sake brewery is actually through our tasting room. You know, we spent a lot of time um, building a, a tasting room that was welcoming and, uh, and that where people could learn a lot about sake. So we offer flights, uh, we offer uh, brewery tours. Uh, you know, our Koji room has windows right there so people can look in from the bar. Um, and, you know, we wanted to create an experience for people. Well, and, you know, obviously with COVID, a lot of restaurants closed and, and we were no exception. So there's periods of time where we were closed. Um, but we've eventually kind of were able to reopen and kind of build that back up again. Um, and, you know, I, I see a lot of potential in the future. You know, I, it's been hard, um, you know, having to to kind of scale back what we what we've been doing or to have, you know, maybe lower revenues than we anticipated. But um Everyone who comes through these doors is just so excited about what we're doing. And we're excited to be expanding our distribution partnerships across Virginia. Um, so there's a lot of silver lining out there. I feel like we kind of have to weather these last few months, fingers crossed, uh, you know, between the COVID spikes. But we see the vaccine uh, is, is rolling out and is, is positive on the horizon. So, yeah, we have some silver lining ahead of us. Mm, yeah, and we're going to celebrate it with a lot of sake once yeah. everything's open. <laughs> so uh, let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, we will discuss Andrew's award-winning classic sake as well as mind-blowing creative sake. So please stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Aki Kotema, and my guest today is Andrew Santofante, who is the co-owner and head brewer of North American Sake Brewery in Charlottesville, Virginia, which opened in 2018. And it is Virginia's first and only sake brewery. So uh, what is your philosophy of sake making? Yeah, so my, my philosophy on sake making is... Um, <laughs> put your heart into it and make the best sake that you can. Um, you know, we're, we're young, we're two years in. Um, and you think about that compared to some of the lineages of sake breweries in Japan, <laughs> we're, we're barely a speck on the map. Um, and you know, we're also an American sake brewery. So, you know, we talked a little bit about some challenges, but there's just a heap, heap of challenges, whether it's, 
um, you know, the rice that's available or the equipment that we have versus maybe more refined Japanese equipment. Um, and so I feel like these first two years have been uh, spent vetting a lot of things, it's spent learning my equipment, it's been spent learning the rice that I have, learning my koji room, uh, learning, learning my own uh, styles and, and, you know, and brewing batch after batch to kind of keep iterating and to keep building and to keep improving. Um, so we're, I think we're very much in this early stage of, of constant improvement. Um, you know, constantly tweaking, you know, soak times, constantly tweaking steaming times and, and fermentation temperatures uh, and how long we're, um, you know, maybe uh, growing koji for and what, at what temperatures and all these things that are um, a little bit of wild cards for us because it's all kind of new. Um, so I guess my philosophy is it's a, it's a mix of, of constant iteration and improvement right now, but also just knowing that if I try my hardest, if I put my heart into, into the sake that I'm making, uh, that that will show at the end of the day. One of um, you know, my favorite conversations I had with uh, Diamond Son when I was at Diamond Shoes in Osaka was about this same thing um, and talking about automated equipment in sake brewing and, 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 but, um, versus handmade uh, things. So like, you know, automated koji makers versus, a, versus handmade koji. Um, and he said that he really believes that you can taste the difference, that that, that hand touch, the passion, the heart that you put into making your koji, that you put into your sake, uh, people can taste it. And I, I believe that. I really do. And so, um, you know, sake making is really hard. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of uh, energy and, and it's physically difficult. Uh, it's more of a marathon, you know. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I think you spend so much time doing these, these things uh, and that by putting your, as much of yourself, as much as your heart, as much as your effort into making sure it's as good as it can be. And even though I know that we have a lot of room for improvement and we have a long, long journey ahead of us towards, uh, you know, improving our sake, that, um, you know, everything we do is to make it as good as possible. Mm, that's excellent. I think sake, Japanese sake, to me, it's, it's a product, but it's more like craft, you know, because of the nature of the tradition. And um, I think that's that's what you said. And I, I, I can taste the difference too. You know, I kind of like some energy put into the product. That's what Japanese traditional sake is to me. So it sounds like you are doing it here in America. That's very exciting. Yeah, yeah I think it's, it, <laughs> you know, it's just a lot of work. Um, and I feel like, you know, we put so much work into it. Um, I want people to taste that. I want people to know that um, it was it was made by hand. It just is the way it is. Mm. So, how do you call your style of sake? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question, and honestly, I don't know the answer to it yet. Um, again, we're we're so young, still learning so much about uh, what our style might be. Um, but I think that something I've always wanted 
for this brewery to do is to help people understand sake better, um, to make it approachable, to make it, um, you know, in line and so that they can understand it so that they can drink more of it and appreciate it more. Um, and so what we have been really focusing on is trying to make our, you know, categoric sakes, uh, as good and as kind of close to, to what they technically uh, might be. So we want our Junmai to be um, recognizable as a solid Junmai. Same with our uh, Daiginjo or our kind of uh, dry Karakuchi Genshu style. Like we want that to be something that people can taste next to um, other sakes um, that we make and, and start to get a picture. Oh, okay, this one's dry. This one is a Daiginjo, so maybe it's a little bit more fruity um, and refined. Uh, this is a Junmai, kind of like a really great overall table kind of sake. Uh, and kind of help people walk them through and see the vision of like, okay, it can be, you know, earthy. It can be um, fruity. It can be sweet. It can be dry. It can have a range of flavors. Um, and I think by giving them that mental map, by having... Uh, strong individual sakes that kind of exemplify these different categories um, gives them the opportunity to to learn their palate and, and understand what they actually like. Um, so I don't know if that's a style more than just an objective, <laughs> but that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, well, that's excellent, right? Because I, I don't know how many people who shop at the wine stores, they, they look at the label and it looks dark maybe it's more tannic or like you know the funny label it may be sweeter <laughs> it's just very subjective you're just guessing and by providing specific information i think it it's really uh think the way to go from now on because especially because online sales are everywhere and you can add any information you want and you can click away you can purchase something you think you know you're certain that you want this. So yeah, I really like the way you approach sake in this market, especially. Yeah. I mean, it, it, to me, it's just really important. We, we have an opportunity to, you know, help people understand what sake is and to help them fall in love with it. So, you know, any kind of information we can give them or, or kind of roadmaps to understanding, I think are, are good. And that's why, you know, we focused so hard on this experience here in Charlottesville at our tasting room is because is we know that people, once they taste our product, they love it. You know, once they understand what sake is and I can bring them into the brewery and, and show them the Koji room and show them, um, you know, the process behind it, they go, oh, wow, this is so much more than I thought it was. That little spark can, can you know, set off hopefully a lifetime of sake enjoyment <laughs> you know that's yeah. and i think that's that's how i fell in love with it was someone you know helping me you know at that um, sushi place kind of saying try this one you know this one might be up your alley and realizing wow there's a world here there's a range of flavors there's a range of style mm. um, right right so um you mentioned a couple of times you know it's hard to get ingredients and everything in this country, but how do you source your ingredients such as rice yeast and uh, what kind of uh, rice yeast um, and maybe koji um, how, how do you use in, in your own sake? So, you know, there aren't as many uh, 
you know, rice suppliers in the U.S. as there are in Japan. Um, there's kind of two main ones that we, we purchase from. And um, in terms of, of yeast, uh, yeast is a tough one because there aren't uh, a lot of sake-specific yeasts available from, you know, your, your yeast banks here in, in the U.S., um, I got lucky and another sake brewer uh, gave me a slant of, of some yeast, some um, 901, and then I've been able to purchase a few from Japan. Um, and then our koji, kin, our koji kin, our koji spore comes from Japan as well, from a company there. Um, and it's interesting, I think early on, uh, especially in my <laughs> basement sake brewery days, I was... Um, purchasing a lot of different types, as many different types of, of kojikin as I could, um, or different rice varieties that I could, or, or trying different yeasts. Um, and while that's still on my roadmap um, to experiment with more with those, I've kind of toned it back and trying to now focus on, um, again, removing some of the um, variables so that I can refine and, and, and make our sake um, as good as it can with the, the kind of the ingredients that we can. And so we actually um, use all Cal Rose variety of rice right now. Um, and not because I think Cal Rose is like a spectacular sake rice, uh, but it's a very widely available rice here in the U.S. It's very affordable. Um, and it gives me the opportunity to learn that rice. Uh, and so I'm really digging in. And, and, you know, every batch kind of adjusting small things about uh, how we use that rice, uh, whether it's soak times or fermentation, fermentation temperatures, how the koji is growing on Cal Rose. So um, I'm learning it. And I think that that's important, too, uh, to spend the time to kind of learn with what we have. Mm, right. So for listeners who are not familiar with sake rice, they are basically sake production-oriented uh, rice that's specifically grown in Japan. And uh, I spoke to many, I mean, you know, there's not too many sake brewers here in America, but um, I think at least a couple of them um, preferred using Kalos. And uh, I think it's amazing that you, you don't have to stick with um, sake rice that's grown only in Japan because this is such a terroir-driven product. So why don't you just use what do you have here that was grown in nature in this country with the water and the air? And uh, I think it had been water. So, oh, by the way, the water in Virginia, is it uh, good for sake making? Yeah, it is. It's very good. We have a low um, iron content, a low manganese content. Um, and it's, it's not too uh, hard. It's not very, it's like, it's like right in the middle. Um, it's not particularly soft either. So we get, a slightly more vigorous fermentation um, than maybe soft water might give. Uh, but it's, it, I think it's pretty solid. And, you know, that's one of those things, I think, too, that um, it is kind of one of our pieces of terroir. So I don't mess too much with our water. Uh, it's kind of the water that we have. I guess that's a lot of my mentality is this is, it is what we have. Right. Well, that makes me really curious about, you know, how your sake tastes like, because, uh, like Kato Sake Works in New York, for example, versus your, uh, I think he uses Kalos too. And uh, if you compare the two, what's the difference, right? I mean, of course, it's cozy, but um, water must be really a big element to affect the taste. So I'm just really curious. 
Yeah. So, um, so you make、uh, both classic and creative sake. So, first of all,、uh, what types of classic sake do you produce? And by the way, you won、uh, silver and gold,、uh, bronze medals for your classic style of sake. So, it must be really good. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So, our、uh, real magic is our Junmai sake,、um, uh, made from cow rose at 70%、um, with a 901 yeast. And we won a silver medal for that at the Saki、uh, World Tasting Challenge. And、uh, I- I'm really proud of that one. I think one,、um, you know, a style like Junmai, which is just a, a I love Junmais. <laughs>、mm. They have that, they have a little bit of everything, even though they're not kind of regarded like Daiginjos might be.、Um, and I think too that we've been working on our Junmai, you know, since we've, Obviously, since we've opened, and I've again just been iterating on it and trying to make it better and better. So it's, it really is a proud thing for me to be able to say, okay, we actually got some recognition for this one that we've been working on.、Um, and you know, we'll keep working on that. And then we won、uh, a bronze medal、uh, for our Serenity Now, which is a Junmai Dai Ginjo.、Uh, again, a, a Cal Rose、uh, milled to 50%, and this time we used the Number five from Akita Kona yeast. And it has a really, really、uh, nice, kind of almost tangerine quality to it with a really, really refined palate.、Um, and,、uh, you know, just again, so happy to、um, see the results of that and, you know, trying to make a style that's kind of indicative, so slightly fruitier character with more, you know, nose to it, more aromatics. Uh, and really happy with how it turned out.、Um, so, those are our kind of two big flagships. We also make、um, a Nigori style cloudy sake called Big Baby.、Um, and what I do,、uh, which I think again is to help people navigate this,、uh, is that our real magic and our Big Baby, you know, the Junmai I just mentioned and the Nigori, are usually from the exact same batch.、Um, And that's so that people can taste them side by side and get an idea of okay, by leaving the rice in, by giving it that cloudy, hazy character, what does that do? You know, how does that change the flavor? And it's fun to see people try them side by side and you'll hear them, oh, I'm getting notes of banana and, you know, the texture is there and there's more kind of like robust flavor on this one. Oh, but the real magic is more subdued and mellow.、Um, And more, a little bit more apple and pear. And so, you know, it is, it, it's amazing to see how much, you know, leaving those, those rice particles in there will do to the, affect the flavor.、Um, and even more so when you get the opportunity to say, these were from the same exact batch, you know, but this one has that rice, so it tastes different. <laughs> I think that's a really fun opportunity to give people to, again, wrap their minds around what, what is sake. Mm, right. Especially Nigori,、uh, it's coarsely filtered, meaning there's still like live elements、um, there, or like、um, and the muscadate is only like, you know, that yeast is still there. Like there's some elements of life remaining that gives a different flavors into sake, right? And I, I really like that romantic idea of some life <laughs> elements in the b o t t l e too. Well, you know, that's why we call it Big Baby. Because <laughs> we will we'll do our kind of、um, initial pressing and then we will、um, 
basically, I try to bottle it um, either the the next day if I can um, after pressing. So it's it's kind of this really early moment of sake for us, um, and it has this kind of vibrancy and and brightness to it, which I think. Like you said, it's kind of like this life to it, which I love. So it's the big baby. <laughs> and uh, well, I can't help reading this. Uh, this is from uh, the uh, the 2020 World Sake Challenge website and the description. That's the Junmai. Well, the Junmai uh, compared to Junmai Daiginjo, it's it's more like the ingredients of rice grains are not so milled down, meaning the original rice flavor is more potent. And uh, description is uh, silvery straw color, aromas and flavors of gooseberry, grapefruit peel, fresh cut grass, buttered toast, and green bell pepper with a sun- and sunny, crisp, fruity, light body and warming, interesting, medium length finish. Who does not want to drink it, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so that sounds good. Yeah, so that's the silver and uh, the bronze metal, that's the Junmai Daginjo. And silvery straw color, aromas of flavors of golden apple, tangerine, toasted oats, and frosted rice cake. It's a supple, lively, dry, dryish, light body, and even brisk finish. So, and it's a price is really reasonable. So the Junmai is $18, and the Daiginjo is $19, according to your website, I guess. So, yeah, it's a... Oh yeah, I think it. So um, the the, it, the issue is it's two different sizes. So um, we used to do seven fifties. The um, the real magic is uh, fourteen ninety nine for the three seventy five, and the um, uh, the serenity now is nineteen ninety nine for the three seventy five. Right. So that's the price of like a half a bottle or mm-hmm. wine size, right? Basically. Okay, yep. and uh, so uh, so your classic style sake, of course, is very well recognized already. But you also have a very creative line of products uh, that are made by infusing other ingredients. So, what is the idea behind it? Yeah, so I think uh, we do we, like we've been talking mostly about traditional styles, and you know we're working hard to make those as as good as possible, and then we. Uh, obviously, we live in the USA where craft alcohol right now is having a really insane moment of <laughs> experimentation and collaboration and kind of pushing the limits on, on fermentation. Um, and so we are kind of taking up that torch as well uh, and seeing how sake kind of fits into that picture. Um, and so we do a number of uh, experimental styles of sake as well as fruited and infused sakes. Um, and it really comes down to what I think is, is this melding of, um, of flavor uh, and that, you know, sake is very versatile in its, its palate and that you can have something fruity and that it can meld uh, with other fruit flavors really, really well. And so we make um, a line of infused sakes that are you know, slightly lower in ABV um, and maybe a little bit sweeter, but, you know, taking uh, fresh fruit, herbs, spices, um, and adding them to uh, the mash itself and letting it ferment kind of all together uh, to create kind of wild and different um, different flavors. And so um, we've done a number of different infusions. Uh, kind of our mainstays are our, our lemon and mint infusion and our, our 
kind of uh, fruit punch infusion. But we've done things like pineapple and sage. We've done, um, you know, mixes with more seasonal ingredients like pawpaw. We did a pawpaw sake. And pawpaw is a really native Virginia fruit that has this kind of mango-esque character to it. Um, And so it's it's a little bit about seasonality and finding uh, different fruits that are... um, and herbs that are kind of indicative of, of what's happening in, in the season. And those come out, they're, they're fantastic. And the sky is really the limit on, on fun things that we can add in in that way. Um, and then we do experimentation with uh, other kind of forms of fermentation, whether that's um, doing something like dry hopping a sake, so taking some hops and adding it to it. And um, we did that, and it, it, the results were really, really amazing. Um, and then we do other things like uh, we are releasing our Moon Leap this week, which is our um, sparkling sake. Uh, but the way that I make it is it's a shubo only sake. So um, basically, uh, you know, the shubo or the moto is kind of a, a yeast starter. And it's a small amount of, uh, of the mash that you then kind of build upon to make a large batch of sake. So... What we do is we actually make a, a little bit larger shubo, uh, and then I just let that ferment all the way through um, for about 30 days, um, and it gives this a very high acidity content, um, and it has a really um, wonderful kind of starfruit-like flavor, um, and we um, get that uh, carbonated up, and we bottle it, and it's really, really fantastic. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, both sides of it, of, of kind of seeing what we can do uh, with the fermentation uh, to, to play with it. But you said, for example, you have a sweet agni and sake infused with lemon and mint. So um, when you put the ingredients um, with, you know, acidity and sugar and some herbal chemicals, right? So this in the mesh, uh, how is the other, like, koji and yeast, do they react differently than without them? Yeah, it definitely changes things. <laughs> and that's part of the experimentation is trying to figure out how it does. Um, and it's a very, you know, inexact science at the moment where, uh, you know, usually I'm doing it kind of in late stage fermentation um, uh, so that it, it some of the character doesn't just get totally, uh, you know, fermented out by the end of that full 30 days. Um and so, yeah, it's, it is a lot of just trying it out and seeing what, uh, what it does to, that, to the mash. And, uh, but in general, the results are just fantastic. The, the, um, that, that, the yeast is strong in sake and it can do a lot of amazing things. So um, we're excited to keep kind of pushing the limits on that. Mm, sounds fun. <laughs> you can't <laughs> wait to try new things every morning when we wake up, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you got to come down and check us out. I, I mean, love that, that. That's that's what it's all about. I think is, um, you know, it, it's a mix of it, it's kind of knowing who we are and knowing a little bit about um, what sake is and where it comes from, and so we kind of are tackling it on both sides. Where we want to make really great traditional styles, we want to show our appreciation and our respect for the lineage that came before us and the and the masters that have done so much to uh, bring sake to what it is today and, and we want to make sure that we we're doing our best to to um, reflect that 
But then we're, you know, like I said, we're in America, so we're going to have fun um, with American styles. And at the end of the day, if I can um, make something that somebody tries and goes, huh, maybe I do like sake. Maybe I don't understand what this is and pull them into the fold, then that's a great thing for everybody. That's, right. that's, well, that's another exactly person. exactly what happened with the Californian walls, like creative sushi walls, right? Now, that's the beginning, and people got interested in sake, adida sushi, and there are people paying uh, authentic sushi, um, like $300 per person. They don't mind because they appreciate the authentic style. <laughs> you use that sushi. Yeah, so, yeah. Right. Definitely. Yeah, but I think really this American creativity, I think it's really important for any tradition because you review. So what is the essence of the original product, right? And you have a huge respect to it. And why not try something new? Because that's how the tradition expands and make progress. So I think, yeah, what are you doing? Is just, uh, I really think it's important. And I think, yeah, I mean, and I think that that's all part of it is kind of pushing in these different directions and trying things that are new. And then, you know, maybe reviving things that are old. You know, I've still got things on my list that I need to, to tackle. Like, I have not done a Kimoto yet, and I really want to, and I, I just haven't gotten to it on my list. But, you know, there are some of those, like, you know, styles that are, are so incredible that I want to explore. Um, the world of sake is just so rich. Right. Yeah, but listeners, we're not familiar with the kimoto. Kimoto is the, the more traditional, um, painstaking, very uh, slow process, but you got a lot of uh, good flavors of, um, you know, the natural ingredients like yeast. So, yeah. So, <laughs> well, let me know when you do that. I'm very curious when you do <laughs> kimoto. Um, yeah, by the way, so you serve as chairman of the North American Sake Association. So could you tell us about the association? Yeah, so um, I'm really proud um, to be chairman of the Sake Brewers Association of North America. Um, we are a relatively new nonprofit um, that has the goal of growing the sake industry in, in North America. And it really was birthed um, from my experiencing in trying to open a sake brewery, um, you know, searching for resources, um, trying to source ingredients, trying to find equipment, um, trying to build a community, uh, and, and meet other sake brewers. It was all just, it was so difficult. Um, and I just thought this is something that, uh, will benefit everyone. Uh, I, I'm a big fan, a big supporter of the idea that a rising tide raises all ships. And so if, um, you know, if we can all as sake brewers in North America do better, then that helps everybody's business. And if somebody comes to my brewery and falls in love with sake, then they might go up to, to New York or they might go to, uh, you know, Asheville, North Carolina or, or uh, Tennessee and try these other American sake breweries. Um, and so, you know, it was just a missing piece. And I think the reality is, 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 is we're so young in this, um, you know, 20 or so sake breweries with some more coming. Uh, that's nothing <laughs> compared to, to beer, uh, craft breweries and uh, wineries. Um, and so if we plant the seeds now, if we start kind of building a community 
you know, pooling resources, finding connections, you know, building relationships with uh, Japanese breweries, um, building relationships with each other, you know, it's all going to, to pay in dividends in years to come when, when, you know, like right now, <laughs> where do you get your yeast? Well, <laughs> becomes, oh yeah, of course, look at this brand new yeast that, that's uh, widely available for everybody. Like that's how you grow an industry. And so I think that um, that's the goal of the Sake Brews Association. And it's a, and it's a cool, exciting time for that too, because we're gaining new members um, all the time. And we are, uh, you know, getting emails from people who are saying, Hey, I, I've really been thinking about starting a sake brewery, you know, who can I talk to? Um, and that's just the best, you know, <laughs> cause you can see it starting to grow and then, you know, hopefully there'll be more and more sake breweries, you know, and then this idea of jizake like <laughs> will, will become something here in the U S too. Right. Yeah, basically, you you share knowledge of consumer development, brewery development, and also you know legislative reform, like all those three purposes, which I think is really important to you know, like you said, like bigger the pie, the better. And also, you might want to go to Japan as a group, and then I'm sure Japanese sake producers get inspired by oh wow, this tradition is really spring springing forward to this new form and it's very inspiring i think yeah i mean i think it's 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 what the industry needs to grow and um it's what i need like as a as a sake brewer in the u.s i need community i need to be able to call up a friend and say hey this is happening what do you think um (laughs) or where did you get that yeast or where did you what how long are you soaking your cow rose for you know it's things like that, that when, when you don't have it, you feel so alone, like you're on this, you know, desert Mm. Island. Um, so if we can build community, that's great. And then, yeah, like legislatively, it's a big deal too, because it's a little, sake is a little bit all over the map right now, uh, in terms of law and how it's treated state by state, you know, federally sake is, um, considered, uh, that it's manufactured like a beer, but labeled like a wine. And then state by state, some uh, sake breweries are beer under the beer laws. Some sake breweries are taxed like wine. Um, There are a lot of labeling issues that people are running into because uh, of just a lack of understanding of what the product is. Um, And so it's it's a challenge uh, to try to navigate that, especially, you know, if you're a new business and a new brewery and you're trying to get started and you've kind of got these huge walls and you have no idea where to turn. Um, hopefully we can build a, a space that people can, can come to and, and grow. Um, so that's, that's kind of the big vision for it. Cause I think that, um, I think we're ready. I mean, I think the U S is a, is a growing market, really strong growth, really strong adoption. Let's build it. Let's make this industry huge. Let's make sake. Awesome. Hey. <laughs> right. Yeah, that makes sense because uh, I think Japanese food like sushi and ramen became a part of American food. So uh, why not? <laughs> I think. Um, okay, <laughs> so what are your plans? Ah, uh, the future. I don't know. You know, the, <laughs> the future is interesting. This last year really threw us for a loop um, and it's kind of felt a little bit like we're just kind of holding on and and navigating through what we can but i feel like now that we're coming out of it there's a 
there's just a lot of potential um, to just keep pushing on our growth. Um, I mean, what I see is expanding outside of Virginia uh, is a major goal of mine. I want to uh, get up to D.C. and to a few other key areas and, and kind of grow our footprint. Um, I want to um, create more styles of sake, some of those experimental ones, some of the more traditional styles as well. Um, you know, the sky is the limit on this thing, really. Um, and, you know, I hope that we can can grow as, a, as our brewery grows. I hope to see sake grow. Um, and I think that it will. You know, I, I really believe that um, it's the most beautiful drink on the planet. And I, I can't wait for more and more people to, to have that experience of, of finding that out. Mm, hey. I love that. The most beautiful drink in the planet. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah. And then, um, you know, the sparkling sake is now very popular in Japan, too, because it was inspired by how popular it is in the American market. So, yeah, I think you are really pushing the envelope. And uh, I, I can't um, keep my eyes off what you're going to do. So keep me posted. Yeah, yeah. And you guys can, you know, check out what we're doing uh, on our Facebook and Instagram, um, our website, www.pourme1.com. And that's also where you can purchase uh, sake to be shipped to your door. Um, so check, check, check us out, follow us. And, um, you know, if, if this is okay, I'll throw this out there too. If it's not, it's fine too. Um, but <laughs> I'm happy to give, uh, you know, all the uh, listeners of Japan Eats a, a promo code that they can buy sake and get a little bit of a uh, discount. So uh, if you put in promo code Japan Eats, uh, you will get 15% off your order. Wow. Thank you. Awesome. Listeners, did you hear that? <laughs> the PubMe1.com. I love the website's name, by the way. And then, <laughs> so promo code Japan Eats. So, wow. Thank you so much. Uh, You're welcome. For your <laughs> and uh, thank you for joining us today, Andrew. Yeah, I'm so happy to, to speak with you. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, so uh, let's try to do some number two for your progress sometime, I don't know, maybe next year. Yeah, happy to come back. This was, this was great. All right, awesome. So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japaneeds.heritageradionetwork.org or akikokatema.com. Japanese is a weekly program and always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify as a podcast. I engineer is Amanda Wong and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Japan Eats is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.